You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Genesis chapter 12, we will wrap up our discussion on chapter 12 today. So I want to turn your attention to chapter 12, verse 10. It says, Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh in his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. We began our discussion here in chapter 12 talking about promises being made to Abram. Promises being made. We said that God obligates himself to do certain things towards Abram, that he he pulls Abram out of a, a large group of, of people, nations all around the world, and he singles out Abram, not because Abram warranted it, not because Abram deserved it. We said that Abram was a, was a pagan worshiper, that he was ingrained in idolatry and sin, and yet God reaches down and saves him and, and draws him out and makes promises to him, promises of blessing, promises to use him, promises to use him as a blessing, Ultimately, we see the promises being fulfilled in Jesus Christ who comes as a fulfillment of all those promises to bring about blessing uh, not only to Abram and his family, not only to the Jewish people, but to people all around the world that are saved. Promises made to Abram. But then we also saw last week that, that there were promises believed by Abram. That Abram stepped out in faith and responded to these promises, picked up his family and moved. And once he comes into the promised land, begins to set up altars of worship, calling upon the name of the Lord. As as God allows him to to work through the promised land, he's not allowed to settle in yet. Because when Abram shows up, there are people occupying the land. But but God does give him the opportunity to survey the land, to to see the, the area that has been promised to his offspring. We said last week that those who truly believe the word of the Lord will forsake all else to become worshipers of the Lord and to serve in his program to bring blessing to the world. That's what Abram did. He responded to God's blessings and promises. He, He obeyed those promises. He responded and showed faith in the way that he acted and moved his family and did what God had commanded him to do. And we see him worshiping. And we spent several weeks talking about what it means to worship. And and we said that it ultimately means relishing in God's worth, seeing his worth through his word, seeing his worth through his faithfulness to people from all time, relishing in that, cherishing in that, proclaiming that with our lips. We said that what we do here today is something that they've been doing since the beginning of time. When Enos began to call his family to public worship, to proclaim the name of the Lord. We said that Abram leads his family into the promised land. And when he sets up these altars and it says that he called upon the name of the Lord, that the word it's being used there indicates that it's more of a a public gathering, a proclamation, a worship service that took place with Abram and his family. Abram was called into the promised land to be a blessing to those that he came in contact with. So things are going great for Abram. Promises have been made to him. He's responded and obeyed. He's entered into the land and he's worshiping God. And then we come to uh, what we see today, promises forgotten. Abram's faith begins to falter. He's had that initial uh, response of obedience and faith and trust, and then trials come his way, and his faith begins to falter a bit. And we'll see how that unfolds in the narrative today. But our summary sentence for this morning, where we're going today, 
uh, seeing these truths within this narrative, living a life of faith, and that's what, that's what Abram is. Abram's a, a demonstration of a life of faith. Living a life of faith requires that we retrain our natural, fleshly responses of self-preservation when trials come our way. Learning a renewed response of godly abandonment based on his promises of good. So to live a life of faith requires that we retrain our natural responses and how we act when trials come our way. We all have natural fleshly responses and we're going to see what we mean by that by calling it self-preservation. We go into survival mode when trials come our way. And living a life of faith means we have to retrain how we respond to trials, not from a self-preservation standpoint, but from a standpoint of godly abandonment. And we can do that because God promises good to his children. So what do we mean by self-preservation and godly abandonment? See if we can get that to come up. All right, self-preservation. Self-preservation is our natural condition. Our natural condition is to seek what we determine provides the most security and the most joy for our lives. Our natural condition is to seek what we determine provides the most security and the most joy for our lives. That's what we mean by self-preservation. It's not something that we typically have to learn. It's a natural response. The natural response to seek what we think provides us the most fulfillment in life. And anything contrary to that natural response has to be learned and developed. Okay? Let me give you an example. We went to the beach a couple of weeks ago. Um, it's Abram's, not his first trip to the beach, but the first trip where he can really enjoy the beach. Okay? So we get to the beach and we set him down in the sand and we don't have to teach him to enjoy the beach. I mean, he gets there and his, his feet hit the sand and his face lights up and he starts to experience the joys of playing in the sand and running in the water. He's enamored with the birds on the beach. I mean, if you turned your head for just a second to have a conversation with somebody, you would turn around and, and honestly, Abram would be halfway down the beach chasing seagulls. I mean, just completely convinced that he could catch them. Love the beach, love the experience. We didn't have to teach him to enjoy it. He just figured out how to feel secure and how to feel joy in that setting. When we tried to pull him away to put sunscreen on him, it was as though we were ripping his joy away from him, right? He doesn't understand yet that the, that the, that the right response for enjoying the beach is to make sure that you're covered in sunscreen so that you don't get burned because later on that night, you won't be experiencing uh, the joys of the beach any longer, right? Um, it's, a, it's a learned thing though, right? I had to learn that as a kid. I hated putting sunscreen on, and there was a, a point in my life where my dad took me fishing, um, and in days when I used to wear shorter shorts than I do now, there is an area right above my knee where there are more freckles contained there than anywhere else in my body because of how badly sunburned I was. Giant blisters showed up on my legs for weeks because of how blistered I got from the sun. Since that time, moving forward, the only time I've gotten sunburn has not been because of a lack of attempting to do it. It's just been a poor application of it. I, am, I, I learned from that experience that suntan lotion was absolutely necessary for me to enjoy the outdoors. But it was a learned behavior, a learned response. I can enjoy the outdoors, don't have to really be taught to enjoy it, but had to learn that necessary behavior, that necessary behavior of putting on the lotion, the suntan lotion, the, uh, the, the screen that would protect me. Our natural condition is to seek, what to, to, to seek what we determine provides the most joy for us. It's not a learned thing. But anything contrary to that natural response is something that we have to learn. So when we talk about godly abandonment, what we mean by that, That should say godly abandonment, not self-preservation at the top. Godly abandonment is renewing our responses based on God's intent for good in our lives. Allowing us to follow him and trust him even when circumstances seemingly defy all logic for good outcomes. This is what we see in Abram's life here in this story. Abram steps away from his worship service 
and discovers that there is a famine in the land. And he immediately goes into survival mode. He immediately assesses the situation. And we don't see him filter the famine through the promises of God that he has to live long enough to have offspring. That that God has to protect him long enough to have children. He immediately goes into survival mode and says, we've got to relocate to find food, else we're going to starve to death here. And then on that route to Egypt, begins to worry about his life once he gets there and whether he will live or die in Egypt. Survival mode. His natural response is to figure out, okay, how can I protect myself? How can I provide security for myself? So he wants to relocate his family because of the famine. And then he's fearful of his own life, even though God has already promised, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. So as Abram's worrying, we're going to get down there and and the Egyptians are going to love my wife and want her for their wife and they're going to kill me. And he has a promise from God that says anyone who tries to curse you and harm you, they'll be cursed and harmed by me. He's got that promise. He's got the promise that he has to have offspring. But none of these trials that come his way get filtered through those promises. But Abram has to learn. He has to learn this type of behavior. He's a a pagan guy who's been putting his faith in false gods. He's been called to a life of faith now towards Yahweh. So he's following God. and, and, and And he's abandoning everything. He's learning godly abandonment. He's learning to give up everything for the good promises of God, but he's not perfected in his faith yet. And so he gets done worshiping here in the promised land and then gets back to real life and, and these trials come his way, famine, and he, and he defaults into thinking like a lost person. He looks at the circumstances and says, wow, the circumstances have changed. And what he fails to realize is that God's promises haven't changed in the midst of those changing circumstances. And so he allows his response to be more of a natural, fleshly, ungodly, lost, I have no hope in a God type of response, moves his family to Egypt. And then once he gets there, panics over whether he's going to live or die and is ready to give up his wife for his own security and well-being. Abram has to learn godly abandonment. That means he doesn't respond like a natural man. He responds supernaturally. He believes promises that God has good intent for him. And so he can trust in those promises, even when the circumstances would say otherwise. When the circumstances would say, this can only turn out bad for you, Abram. Your family's going to starve. Your wife's going to be taken from you. And you're going to be killed over it. That's the circumstance that he's created in his mind. And in his mind, only bad things can happen. And so he responds based on that bad outcome that he sees in his future. He's got to learn that God intends good for him and that he can trust that God in the midst of changing circumstances, even when his circumstances defy that good can come from this. Okay? So that's what Abram's working through and what he's struggling through here at the beginning of this narrative. In your notes, Abram's faith is challenged. His faith is challenged here. Now, it's helpful to remember that Abram is what we've said, kind of the the example of what it means to live a life of faith. That he is a guy who was called out of darkness into light based on the sacrifices of Christ that would come in the future. He's a guy who the Holy Spirit works in his life and develops faith in his life. He perseveres to the end. So Abram is is an example of what it means to be a follower of Christ and how to live a life of faith. Because of that, we see in this story that he experiences trials. And so if he's the example of what it means to live by faith and he experiences trials, then we should surely expect to experience trials in our own life as we follow Christ. Abram sets the example for us in that he is promised by God things and then immediately his faith is challenged and put to the test. Now, it's helpful to remember that prior to this story, there was a prior faith demonstrated by Abram. And so we don't want to completely throw Abram under the bus this morning. You'll remember that he responded by moving his family from Ur to the promised land with a barren wife, a wife that's not bearing children for him. 
He's been promised offspring to produce a nation, and he's, he's banking on that happening, and he's placing a lot of faith in what God has said because he looks to his wife and says, we are not fertile together. We're not producing children. We have been trying for years and have been unsuccessful. He steps out in faith to go somewhere that he's not told where he's going. An unbelievable demonstration of faith that he steps out, quits everything, moves from everything, and heads in a direction and doesn't know where he's going to end up. Doesn't know where that final destination is going to be. He leaves friends behind. He has his father die along the way. Once he gets to the promised land, he's not given a home to dwell in. The Bible says that he continued to live in tents. He shows up and the land is occupied by Canaanites. And what we see in all of these circumstances is that he responds with worship and trust. Worship and trust. All along, up to this point, he's been responding with worship and trust towards God's promises. So he's demonstrated faith in the past, but now there's a call for current faith. Current faith is needed. The Bible would remind us that a faith that can't be tested can't be trusted. So God has made promises to Abram, and now he allows trials to come his way in order to strengthen Abram's faith in this newfound God. In Job chapter 23, Verse 10, but he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. So that the tested genuineness of your your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We've said before when we've talked about faith and trials that our life is the arena. It's the arena for us to demonstrate our faith to those around us. It's our opportunity to perform, to demonstrate trust in the God that we claim to believe in, the promises that we claim to hold to, our life and the changing circumstances that we go through. It's our arena to show others that we truly believe the things that we say we believe. And as we go through these trials, we come out on the other side with stronger faith and belief in this God that we've heard about, been told about, and placed our our faith and trust in. We advance in the school of faith by taking these type of examinations. Circumstances are often used by God as a testing ground of our faith. And while circumstances often change, The test or challenge is will we remember that God's promises don't. We experience changing circumstances. And the test every single time when our circumstances change is do we believe that God's promises haven't changed? That he hasn't faltered? That he hasn't opted out? That he's still obligated to work good for his children? That's the test in every circumstance. Whatever circumstance it is that each one of our families faces this week. In each one of those circumstances, in each one of those tests, the ultimate test is, in the midst of this changing circumstance, do I still believe that God's promises haven't changed? We already highlighted the fact that that Abram promised that he will have offspring. At this point, he has none. Promised that those who try to harm Abram will not be allowed to. And so he enters into a circumstance where that belief is put to the test. Do you believe that you'll starve or be given food? Do you believe that these people will harm you or will their plans be thwarted if they try to harm you? That's the test for Abram. Do you really believe? Do you really believe in these promises that I've given you? Abram must learn that the Christian life doesn't erase problems. It just offers new solutions to our problems. Make sure you get that. The Christian life doesn't erase problems for us. Jesus never promised that. It doesn't erase our problems. It only offers new solutions to our problems. It offers real solutions to our problems. When we come to faith in Christ and put our faith and trust in Christ, we still experience a lot of the same problems that we did prior to Christ. We we still experience job troubles. We still experience temptations. We still experience death of family members. We still experience a lot of uncertainty in our life from a circumstantial point of view. 
The solution, though, now as a believer is that we have put our faith and trust in a sovereign God who controls our circumstances. And we're also given the promise that in controlling our circumstances, he does it for good intent. See, it's one thing to say that we worship a sovereign God who controls everything. But if he's not a good God who promises good to his children, then that could be a very devastating thing. To have a God who is in control of everything, but he's working it not for the good of his children. And so the, the, the solution for us as believers is that we put our faith and trust in a sovereign God who controls everything, who knows everything, who, who, who possesses all wisdom in working out things. And on top of that, he has promised that he works it for the good of his children. Abram's learning that. He's learning that because you remember, he grew up worshiping false gods that were learned about at the Tower of Babel that's been passed down to him. And so the things that he understands about God are false. And so God is having to give him a theology lesson on who he is and how he functions. And so he's teaching Abram that he's a good God that can be trusted. God needs to break Abram of lingering fears. You'll remember in Genesis 20, so looking ahead into Genesis, Abram and Sarah talk about the fact that before they ever left Ur, they had made this arrangement that if they ever got into a situation where it looked like Abram's life was in danger because of her beauty, that they would lie about it. That they were going to trust in their schemes to get themselves out of the situation. And so God sees that. God recognizes that. And he says, okay, you, you, you've put your faith and trust in me, but even in stepping out in faith, you've kept a little bit back for yourself. There's some lingering fears that some of the things that you hold most dear to yourself Abram's own life and his wife, the things that you hold most dear to you, that they could be taken away from you and you would be devastated by that. He says, I need to break you of that. I need to break you of that because I've given you good gifts and you've elevated those gifts above the giver. Remember I told you, Tyson posted a great article by John Piper in Desiring God on how we can see and know when good things given to us have become idols in our life. When it's moved to enjoying things, to coveting things. And I would encourage you to go back and read that article if you haven't. Because what we have here is Abram, who has taken the gift of life and the gift of a wife and has elevated those things above God. He holds on to those things so closely. Doesn't want to see those things go away. And he says, okay, I'm trusting this God, but only so far. If I feel like my life's in danger or my wife is going to be taken from me, we have a backup plan. This is what we're going to default to if we get into this situation. Okay? God's going to break him of that. Our natural response in trying circumstances is to trust in everything but God. God uses tough circumstances of life to build the muscles of faith as he retrains us to trust in nothing but him. Our natural response is to trust in everything but God. For whatever reason, our natural response is to try to compartmentalize our Christian faith and what we do in our, in our church life from what really goes on during the week in our natural life. Worship service was great on Sunday. We talked about the promises of God. I'm in the midst of a trial here. I'm going to try to handle this myself. I'm going to try to work this out myself. And we compartmentalize it. Abram's just called his family to public worship and built an altar in a pagan, pagan society where most likely the pagans could see them worshiping this God. And then he steps away and he finds out there's a famine and he, and he starts to act on his own and starts to do things on his own. He compartmentalizes the two. God wants to train our muscles of our faith to trust in him and nothing else. We can, we can call it muscle memory. When we're, when we're working with our football team right now, we started football practice a lot of the things that we do, we do repetitively because we want to teach our kids, we want to teach their bodies to act a certain way consistently. Do the same thing the same way every time so that when we get into a game, your muscle memory causes you to do this exactly the way that we need you to do it. God's taken Abram and says, I need to train the muscles of your faith to act in a certain way when you're in a trial in a, in a, in a difficult circumstance. That your muscles of faith react towards trusting me versus trusting something else that can't really offer a viable solution. God says, I'm going to teach you how to do this. I'm going to train you to trust in me. 
Faith's challenges always should lead us to say, what can I get out of this versus how can I get out of this? God's going to bring us trials, and he intends to teach us in the midst of those trials. James 1, 1 through 12 is a great passage to look at. The famine comes. We see in Genesis chapter 12 that there's a severe famine in the land, and Abram has to figure out what to do with it. Abram has arrived to find plenty of Canaanites, but not plenty of food. There are several major famines that take place in the book of Genesis, and we'll see as we continue to move forward. There's this one. There's another famine that happens in the life of Isaac um, after he grows up and, and is married. Um, and then there's also a famine at the very end of Genesis that ultimately leads Jacob's family to go live in Egypt. And that's where we find them in the book of Exodus when God has to rescue them out. So famines are not completely uncommon. This seems to be kind of part of, of, of living in Canaan. That There's times when famine comes. It's also worth noting that Egypt is oftentimes viewed as the solution. A lot of times people flee to Egypt when there is a famine. The reason for that is because Egypt was strategically located next to the Nile River. So when there was a lack of rain in Canaan, there was not a lack of water in Egypt. Their crops could continue to thrive because of the irrigation system of the Nile River. And so oftentimes foreigners would flee to Egypt, would pay money to the Egyptians to continue their own survival because of the drought in Canaan. So Egypt oftentimes is viewed as the most natural solution to dealing with a famine. Abram needs to have faith in God during this situation. Abram's faith falters, though, as he gets into this trial. Abram's faith falters. We see that he's presented with the situation of a famine. And we see that Abram immediately goes to work in trying to solve the problem. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. It may have been that Abram had, had talked with some of the locals and asked how they were handling the famine, and had learned that many people were traveling to Egypt. And so Abram says, okay, based on, on, on my evaluation of the circumstance, the best thing for us to do is to move to Egypt. To protect our family. And so he, he goes into self-preservation mode. I'm in a trial. I'm in a circumstance. My joy is being threatened. My security is being threatened. Here is how we will respond. We will respond the natural way. We'll respond how everyone else around us is responding. We will flee to Egypt for safety and security. Abram had wrongly anticipated how to handle trials. And he planned poorly in this situation. Now, we don't, you probably don't feel the tension here like we really should. But as Moses writes, he wants us to feel the tension here about the messianic promise that's been given. Because we as believers need to learn God's faithfulness through this story. That he's made a promise in Genesis 3 that he's sending a deliverer to crush the head of Satan. And as he's continued to unfold that promise, we've learned here in Genesis 12 that it has to come through Abram now. That God has promised the deliverer will come through Abram. And so the tension here in the story is, will these people starve to death before they have the deliverer or before they have offspring to bring about the deliverer? And then as the story continues to unfold, will Abram die if these people want his wife? And then as it continues to unfold and we see that Abram and his wife have been separated, the tension now is, will Abram ever get his wife back? Or is she now bound to this Pharaoh? Is she now his wife to produce offspring from him? How will God fix this situation? He's made promises to bring the Messiah. And there's tension in the story that we're supposed to feel. So that as the, as the circumstances unfold and we see God come through, our faith is renewed. That when he makes promises, he keeps promises. And we don't have to doubt his solutions to our circumstances. Abram begins to develop this plan. Was it wrong for Abram to travel to Egypt? And commentators are split on this. Did, did Abram, and they want to kind of spiritualize the language. It says that Abram went down to Egypt. And so they want to say that he declined in his faith. And, and, he, and he took a, a, a spiritual journey downward. And he regressed in his faith by going down to Egypt. Um, others would say that, hey, this is how, how we respond. We're to respond in wisdom to the circumstances that we're faced with and to do at times what's smart for our family. Um, and so was it wrong for Abram to respond 
by going to Egypt. I think it's important that, that, that Abram was not expected to rely on special, special revelation all of the time. Never did God say, I will always tell you exactly what to do in every circumstance. Which is helpful for us because we certainly can't rely on God divinely coming to us every single day and telling us which choices to make. Right? God expects spiritual discernment within us. He expects us to act on wisdom, to use the brains that he's created us with to make smart decisions for ourselves. So Abram was not expected to rely exclusively on God giving special revelation in every situation of his life. Egypt at times is seen as a refuge in Scripture, right? Jacob's family flees to Egypt. It's a good thing. Remember, uh, Joseph says down in Egypt, you guys meant this for evil. God meant it for good. He's brought my family here. We're going to be saved from the famine because I've stored up food for everybody. Jesus and Mary and Joseph flee to Egypt when Herod wants to kill the baby boys and Jesus would have been subjected to that. Angel comes to him in a dream and they flee to Egypt. So it's not wrong at times in Scripture to flee to Egypt for refuge. At times God uses protection in Egypt for his people. So I think we would be hard-pressed to say that it was wrong for Abram to go to Egypt here. God could have divinely told Abram not to go if he wanted to. In Genesis chapter 26, we'll see this later on, but when there's famine regarding Isaac, it says in Genesis 26, 1, now there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abram. And Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. So in this incident, God does come divinely to Isaac and says, don't go to Egypt for refuge during this famine. Don't go there. So had God intended for Abram not to go, we can trust that he would have divinely stopped him. God divinely stops us at times when we're going to make a decision that he doesn't want us to make. Remember, Paul had intentions of going to a certain location with his missionary journeys, and God came to him and said, not there, go here. So we can trust that as we act on wisdom and guidance and we're really seeking god's will that if we ever start to deviate from where he really wants us to go that he'll stop us and redirect us he redirected isaac here isaac may have had intents to go to egypt and god says don't go we have no indication from scripture here in genesis 12 that god had communicated either way so i lend to trusting that abram was doing what he felt was best for his family and was acting on wisdom the problem becomes that in developing a plan he also devises his own protection here. Okay, so I can get behind Abram and say, smart decision, Abram. There is a famine. There is a lack of food. Don't be guilty of standing in a desert wilderness and saying, God has to provide food for me when God has provided food for you in Egypt. Right? So, so I can get behind Abram and say, this is a good decision. You've evaluated the situation and you are doing what's best for your family. Where Abram's faith really falters, though, clearly is in how he devises protection for his family once he gets to Egypt. Instead of relying on the promises of God, he and his wife begin to scheme as to how to protect themselves. He begins to scheme rather than trust. He reasons like an unsaved man with no God to trust him. Now that the worship service is over, Abram says, we've got to eat. And I guess we're on our own for figuring this out. This is where Abram's faith really falters. We don't see him clinging to God's promises. Instead, we see him scheming to work this out for his own good. And this is true for us in our own life. When we start to shift away from trusting in God's promises and we begin to feel like it's on us to work out good in our life, Oftentimes it leads to scheming. It leads to compromise in our life. It leads us to making decisions that we feel like are necessary evils in order to create good in our life. And I've talked with people who have tried to justify what they would call necessary evils. We've got to plow through it because on the other side, good will come out of this. Versus trusting that the sovereign ruler of the universe is fully capable of ordaining circumstances to produce good. Abram deviates from trusting in God and says, okay, we've got to come up with some form of protection here because if we just go down to Egypt, I'm going to get killed. He forgets the fact that God has promised that he can't be killed. 
until he has offspring. He can't, he can't be harmed right now because God has promised to, to curse those that would try to harm him. He, he forgets those promises and begins to scheme and develop his own plan. A couple of problems with this. Problem number one, fear rather than trust dictates how Abram leads his family. This is important for us as, as uh, husbands and dads. Let me speak to the husbands and dads right now. In leading our families, we have to guard against allowing fear to dictate our decisions rather than trust. When we allow fear to start dictating our actions, oftentimes it's going to lead to poor results. We start to embrace this, this macho man mentality that I am responsible for working out good for my family. I'm responsible for figuring out these circumstances and how to make them produce good for my family. Fear starts dictating how Abram leads his family rather than trust in Yahweh. God has said time and time again in this chapter, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this. But look what Abram focuses on. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me. They will let you live. Instead of, instead of focusing on what God has promised that he will do, Abram starts to speculate about what others will do. He has absolutely no assurance that he's going to get down there and that the normal practice for Egyptians is to examine the people that come in and pull the prettiest to be their wives. Right? He's creating a scenario. He's creating a circumstance that's not even a real circumstance yet. He's playing this what-if game, and he's making the what-if reality. And so in his mind, they're going to walk into Egypt, and immediately he's going to be met with a group of people that want to kill him because his wife's so beautiful. And so he says, that's reality. The only hope that we have is to lie about it. Because if we just go into it like this, I will die, you'll be spared, and, 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 and that'll be the end of it. And so he goes into survival mode and, and, and creates a what-if scenario and makes it so real. And he's so fearful of it, it dictates how he leads his family moving forward. He goes into survival mode when the trial arrives and plays the what-if game. Problem number two with this scenario Abram assumes the worst of the lost. And sometimes we can be guilty of this. We can assume that, that because someone's not a believer, we assume the worst about them and their actions and their behavior. Abram does this. He assumes the worst of these pagan Egyptians. They certainly won't spare me. They certainly won't spare my wife. We're going to walk in and just need some food, and they're going to ransack my family. He assumes the absolute worst possible scenario. And he allows that fear to drive how he leads his wife to respond to this trial. When you stop trusting in God's word, you begin to lean on man's wisdom. Proverbs chapter 3 reminds us of leaning on God's wisdom versus man's. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Verse 18. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. What you'd like to see here from Abram is that he moves forward with, as, as best he knows, the right plans for his family. But you'd love to see him calling upon the name of the Lord here for added wisdom and guidance about how to handle this. You'd love to see him praying for protection as they go into Egypt versus trying to devise a plan of protection for how this can work out for good. Proverbs 29.25 reminds us of our proper place for fear, that we don't fear man, we're called to fear God. Proverbs 29.25 the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Jesus reminds his disciples that we need to fear the one who is over our body and our soul, not just the one who can harm our body. 
Abram fears losing his life and his wife. God needs to break him of his love for the gifts of God. What's, what's encouraging is that we can go ahead and look ahead. And we know that by the end of Abram's life, when God calls him to give up Isaac, he's learned this lesson. He's learned this lesson that the gifts that God has given him are never to supersede his love for God. And so he, he's willing to sacrifice Isaac if that's what God wants him to do, trusting that good will come from it. And so what we can see is that Abram, as he goes through this school of faith and and God's teaching him how to exercise these muscles of faith, that by the end of his life, he's demonstrating a true life of faith. God has called upon him to give up what's most precious to him. And he he doesn't delve into a response of fear. He doesn't try to scheme to get out of it. He very willingly follows the call that God has placed upon him. So they come into Egypt. Sarai's beauty becomes the focus of the chapter. Abram's very concerned that she'll be taken from him. This presents some problems for people because she's 65 years old and reconciling how in our society someone of that age would be the the commotion of the town. That's not to say that, that beauty doesn't age well, okay? But it's helpful to remember, too, that while she's maybe post uh, being able to bear children, that she's at about half her, her life expectancy at this point. She'll, she'll die at about 127 years old. So she's middle age. So for us and our life expectancy being 70, 80, she's, she's in her 30s right here. So it's not that, that we understand her age to be 65 like we understand it now. But it's a testimony to, to her beauty because what Abram fears does transpire here in, the, in this account. Um, he's fearful that, that she is going to be the attraction of all the men that see her. And it does play out that way. It does play out that way. She becomes an object of affection for these people that see her for the very first time. Um, it's as though Abram realizes he married way out of his league as he's walking down to Egypt. He begins to realize that, that God has blessed me with an unbelievable gift. And this gift is very likely to be taken from me when other people see her. Um, and so there, there's, there's fear, and it's apparently justified fear, because apparently she really was a beautiful woman that other people desired to have. Um, Abram wants to emphasize the sister relationship here. We talked before that Genesis 20.12 tells us that she is, in fact, his sister. She's a half-sister. And so Abram wants to draw on that versus her being his wife. So it's a half-truth. It's not a complete outright lie. He says, let's just emphasize the sister relationship, right? Um, instead of what's most true about her, and that, that's that she's his wife now. Now, if you read the account, it looks like Abram's just ready to give her up. I mean, he, he's, if you read it and you, and you just kind of read it at face level, you think, okay, He's expecting to walk into Egypt. Somebody wants her to be their wife. And so he's going to just say, take her. She's my sister. We're not married. Don't kill me. As though he's ready to just give her up. A lot of commentators speculate, though, that what his intent was is that if this happens, if somebody really does want her, we will present you as my sister. And then there will have to be legal discussion as to how they can obtain you to be your wife. We can drag that out. Remember, Laban dragged it out. Remember when, when um, Jacob wanted to marry Rachel? He said, you're going to have to work for seven years before I'll give her. So in, in, it's, it's probable that Abram's mindset was, we'll present you as my sister, which means there has to be discussions that take place, and we will get out of Dodge if that's the case. And you won't be that person's wife. We'll escape. That he was hoping to buy himself some time to get out if necessary versus just being killed on the spot that an Egyptian would say, okay, I don't have to kill anybody, right? She's not somebody else's wife. I just have to figure out how to make her my wife, and it would give him some time. Either way, they devise a lie in trusting in their own plans versus God's plans for this situation. Um, I don't know how this discussion played out because I'm sure that it was longer than what we have here in the text. I can't imagine how Sarai heard Abram's words here. Um, He says, uh, say you are my sister, that it may go well with me, 
because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. Uh, Abram desires that it go well with him, even at the sake of his wife's well-being. Again, this is that self-preservation, survival mode that kicks in here. He's really thinking about himself. How can I make sure that I don't die in this situation? And I can't imagine the feelings that she must have felt in Abram's reasoning here. The New Testament would tell us that as a husband, we should value the safety of our wife far more than our own safety, right? Ephesians 5, 1 Peter 3, would talk about the extreme value that a husband should place on his wife and being willing to lay down his life for his wife following the example of Christ and his sacrifice for his bride. But what we see here is Abram trying to scheme, how can I make this go well with me for the sake of my wife? And I think the play on words that Moses uses um, probably haunts Abram Because it says, when Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. The woman was taken into Pharaoh's house, verse 16. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And then he has all these animals. Like, okay, you want want to be dealt with well, Abram? So God responds and says, okay, here's what happens when you don't trust in me. You want good. I've already obligated myself to give you good, but you're determined to work out the good for yourself. Here's what happens when you try to work out the good for yourself. Pharaoh deals well with him, but at the end of the day, Abram's looking out and seeing a bunch of animals, and he knows that his wife is in another man's house. And he was so fearful of his own life, his life has been spared, but I'm sure the prospects of life moving forward are not anything that he intended for it to be. For his wife to be dwelling in another man's house at this point. Abram gets what he wants. His life is spared. Things go well for him. And he's compensated well for Sarai. Was Abram's lie justifiable? Some would argue that the moral nature of a lie should be determined by the situation and not by an absolute standard. If the motivation is for good purposes, it's okay. And there's a lot of debate about this. And there was a lot of debate in in seminary when I was in seminary in a class about this. Is it okay to lie with the intent of good things happening because of the lie. And we see other situations in scripture where people lie for what we would call good purposes. The midwives in Egypt, when they're told to kill the baby boys, they hide them, they say that they've done it, and they haven't done it. Rahab lies about the spies. Michael lies about David being sick. She says, my husband's sick, you can't, you can't talk to him right now. They barge in and she's set it up to where it looks like he's in bed, but he's not, he's already escaped. We see these these situations play out in Scripture where people deceive and lie for good purposes. But I don't think Scripture supports the actions. A couple of responses to whether it would be okay for him for, for the lie to be justified. It's presumptuous to assume that a situation can only turn out badly without lying. It's presumptuous on our part to evaluate a circumstance and say the only way that God can do good in this situation is if I lie about it. What we're then saying is that God has put us in a situation where the only way to get out of it is to lie. It's the only way for good to happen. The Bible says that when we're put in a situation of temptation, there's always a way of escape. Presumptuous to assume that a situation can only turn out. Because what we're saying is we're creating a what-if scenario. What if I don't lie? We're creating a what-if and making it reality and saying if I don't do this, 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 this is the only outcome. And it's not. Second response to this, honesty and integrity are some of the most potent weapons in spreading the gospel. We're going to see at the end of this that that Abram's ruined any testimony that he could possibly have with Pharaoh. I mean, Pharaoh is angry at how he's treated this situation. Our honesty and integrity are important as believers if we're to spread the gospel. And then the last response, well... Lying doesn't um, guarantee that a situation turns out good. Lying doesn't guarantee, and we see that in this story. Abram lied, and it's only because God comes in and saves the day that this situation does turn out good. To our last point this morning, God brings salvation. Thankfully, when we don't let God rule, he overrules our actions for his glory. God graciously brings plagues upon Pharaoh to spare him more extensive judgment. We're not told about the nature of the plagues here. We're not told as to to how Pharaoh figures out that it's due to him taking Sarai. 
more than likely it has to do with him attempting to take her to be his wife, to potentially defile her, and God steps in and prevents that from happening. That before he can actually sleep with her, God brings plagues to prevent that. And at some point, discussion ensues that shows that it's because you've taken me and I'm married to Abram that Pharaoh is tipped off as to why these plagues are happening. God steps in and brings judgment. There would have been far more judgment had Sarai been taken as his wife. I think what's, what's concerning is that rather than being a blessing to the nation of Egypt, Abram's actions bring judgment upon the nation. Remember, he's called to be a blessing to other nations. And because of his devious schemes and his lying and his lack of trust, it doesn't just affect him and his family, it affects this nation of Egypt. And Pharaoh's household is subjected to plagues. Rather than coming into Egypt with all these renewed promises at Bethel, rather than walking in and proclaiming the name of the Lord and teaching them about this new God that he's discovered and learned about and and put his faith and trust in, Rather than being that guy, he comes in lying and scheming, not trusting Yahweh, and it leads to judgment on the nation of Egypt. It's a tragedy because he's been called to be a blessing. It's a reminder to us that to be a blessing to others, we must be in the will of God, trusting him with our lives. This is real similar to Jonah. You'll remember when we went through the book of Jonah, that Jonah's lack of trust and lack of obedience leads to judgment upon those sailors who were from other nations His actions led to their demise, led to their punishment. We learned some things about the doctrine of sin here. Abram's prospering, but it doesn't excuse his actions, right? Just because things may be going well for you in your life with hidden sin doesn't mean that God's affirming it or excusing it. Prosperity doesn't mean God's favor all the time. God God has allowed Pharaoh to bless Abram with, with possessions But I guarantee you, at the end of the day, Abram was not thinking, this is good. My wife has been taken from me, and she's the covenant mom for what's supposed to happen with God's blessings and promises. Prosperity doesn't guarantee that God's excusing our actions. Our sin often leads to hurtful consequences for others. We've got the plagues here, but we're going to see in the next chapter that Abram's decision to let fear dictate the leadership of his family versus trust, it will have consequences for years to come. Hagar comes from this scenario. Most likely, Hagar is given as a female servant to Abram in exchange for Sarai. And she becomes a stumbling block for Abram's family down the road. Lot, in the very next chapter, it talks about how Lot is still enamored with the things of Egypt. And when it comes time to separate, he pitches his tent toward Sodom and wants to live there because it's the closest thing he can get to Egypt. We're going to see that the possessions that they get are what divide divide Lot and Abram. They can't agree about the possessions. They can't handle the possessions that have been given to them. Sin has consequences that are far-reaching. Even when confession and renewal happens, it doesn't mean that the consequences go away. Abram, because he failed to trust in God, will experience consequences for years to come because of this. Some implications for us about this story. Or really just general implications, uh, specifically for Israel. Number one, Israel was provided confident reasoning for their own safe delivery from Egypt. There's a lot of parallels in what happens here and what eventually happens in the nation of Israel. And Moses writes this story as an encouragement to the nation of Israel that reads the book of Genesis first. A lot of parallels with uh, Abram coming down to Egypt, Israel coming down to Egypt. Them needing to be rescued out of, out of uh, being captured. Prosperity coming because of the Egyptians. A lot, a lot of similarities. And so Moses uses this story to reinforce the faith that Israel is supposed to have in God now that they're journeying to the promised land. It's a reminder, too, that God didn't allow Abram to starve and he's not going to allow the children of Israel to starve in the wilderness as they journey to the promised land. It's also encouraging to us to be reminded that we aren't defined by faithless acts, but by a faithful life. I mean, we could leave this morning and think, wow. Abram, what a screw-up. Like he, he failed this test of faith. But what should be encouraging to us is that in the midst of his failure, when we skip ahead to Hebrews 11, there is more written about Abram's faith than anybody else listed in Hebrews 11. We aren't defined by our, our individual failures. We are defined by the life of faith that we live 
through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we don't need to become so downtrodden when we fail some of the tests that God brings our way. The response isn't to abandon and say, okay, I've failed, I'm, I'm a failure, I can't do anything right. The response is to, to say, okay, next time I'm going to learn the lesson that I didn't realize in this situation so that when a similar circumstance comes, I capitalize the way that I'm supposed to. That I trust rather than fear. That I respond with godly abandonment knowing that he has good intent for me versus trying to falter back into a self-preservation type mindset. Two applications for us. Number one, we're to worship faithfully. A lack of worship leads to unbelief in God and confidence in self. If we go back to where Abram was worshiping, he had worshiped at Bethel. And then in verse 8 it says, From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And verse 9, And Abram journeyed on still going toward the Negev. And we don't have any more worship take place until chapter 13. No more altars are built. No more calling upon the name of the Lord is listed for us. It's possible that there was a lack of worship going on. Which caused him to forget some of these promises. Which then increased confidence in his own self. Regardless if that really happened here. It's certainly true for us. If there's a lack of worship in us. If there's a lack of relishing in God's worth in the word, if we spend time away from God's word, you know, we take a break and we say, okay, uh, God's word is not a priority in my life right now. We start to take a break from, from public worship with other believers. And, and so we distance ourselves a little bit from, from worshiping with other believers. It naturally leads to an unbelief in God because we're not surrounding ourselves with reminders about God and his promises. We're not in the word. We're not with other believers who are in the word to remind us of those promises. And it, and it un, undoubtedly leads towards a confidence in self. And we start trying to handle our circumstances by ourselves. And there's, there's distrust and there's fear. So we have a responsibility to worship faithfully, to keep our heart's attention on God's worth and his promises towards us so that when we're faced with trials, we trust him because his promises don't change even when circumstances do. And then number two, trust in his good intent. When we default to our old way of acting for the good of ourselves, it usually turns out bad. We have to trust in God's good intent for us. If Abram, this whole story turns out totally differently. If Abram had not gone into self-preservation mode, if he hadn't tried to determine his own security and his own joy, if he'd have said, okay, you know what? I'm going to trust God. I'm going to trust that he knows what's best for me. See, Abram's still learning to trust in us as his parents. But if Abram understood that concept, then when we pulled him away from the beach, which he thoroughly enjoyed, and said, Abram, buddy, it's time to put on some suntan lotion, there wouldn't have been the, the screaming and the upsetness. He would have said, you know what? I trust my parents. They always want what's good for me. And we try to reinforce that to our kids. Hey, we're doing this, and you can trust that even though you don't like it, it's for your good. We want them to learn that because we want them to see that from their true heavenly father. That when, 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 when things are happening in our life that we don't desire, don't necessarily choose, that we can trust that there's a sovereign God in control working good for us. So even when circumstances are changing, even when they're less desirable, we can trust that there's good intent behind them. I want us to close this morning by looking at Psalm 105. We're just going to read through it and, and pray together and be finished. But I think Psalm 105 is such an encouraging psalm because it highlights God's faithfulness to his people during this time. And it would be a mistake to read this and think, okay, that's great. God was faithful to Israel. And not be reminded that the New Testament truths are that we have been grafted in. We have been grafted into this family, and Abram is our spiritual father, whether we're of Jewish descent or not. And so we shouldn't read this as an isolated dealing of God with a group of people that we're not a part of. Because the New Testament would say contrary. The New Testament would say, this is your spiritual heritage. These are your family. And God's faithfulness to them 
God's faithfulness to them is a reminder of his faithfulness to you today. Psalm 105. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done. His miracles and the judgments he uttered. O offspring of Abraham, his servant. Children of Jacob, his chosen one. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever. The word that he commanded for a thousand generations. The covenant that he made with Abraham. His sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute. To Israel as an everlasting covenant. Saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. When they were few in number, of little account, and sojourners in it, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, Touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. When he summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron until what he had said came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him. The ruler of the people set him free. He made him lord of his house and ruler of all his possessions to bind his princes at his pleasure and to teach his elders wisdom. Then Israel came to Egypt. Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham. And the Lord made his people very fruitful and made them stronger than their foes. He turned their hearts to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. He sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen. They performed his signs among them and miracles in the land of Ham. He sent darkness and made the land dark. They did not rebel against his words. He turned their waters into blood and caused their fish to die. Their land swarmed with frogs, even in the chambers of their kings. He spoke and there came swarm of flies and gnats throughout their country. He gave them hail for rain and fiery lightning bolts through their land. He struck down their vines and fig trees and shattered the trees of their country. He spoke and the locusts came, young locusts without number, which devoured all the vegetation in the land and ate up the fruit of their ground. He struck down all the firstborn in their land, the first fruits of all their strength. Then he brought out Israel with silver and gold and there was among his tribes who stumbled. There was none among his tribes who stumbled. Egypt was glad when they departed for dread of them had fallen upon it. He spread a cloud for a covering and fire to give light by night. They asked and he brought quail and gave them bread from heaven in abundance. He opened the rock and water gushed out. It flowed through the desert like a river. For he remembered his holy promise and Abraham, his servant. So he brought his people out with joy, his chosen ones with singing. And he gave them the lands of the nations and they took possession of the fruit of the people's toil. They might keep his statutes and observe his laws. Praise the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we, we look back into time past and see your faithfulness to your people. And God, as we read through Psalm 105, we recognize circumstances changing constantly. We see your people being subjected to famine. We see your, your people being subjected to slavery. We see them being subjected to changing circumstances. Circumstances that that none of us would desire to be placed into. But God, what we see ringing true time and time again is that you are in control of those circumstances. And the call upon us as your children is to trust you in those circumstances. God, we're thankful for the story of Abram this morning. We're thankful that you have given us an individual, a man who you called out of darkness into light, just as you've done for many of us. We're thankful that you give us account after account of how you worked and moved in his life to strengthen his faith in you. God, help us to find joy and and encouragement in seeing a man like Abram fail and restored. God, we know that as we continue to progress through our life, we are going to face tests and trials and we're not going to respond the way that we should have. We are going to default into a self-preservation mode where we try to work out our own joy and security in the midst of a challenging circumstance. 
But God, we are grateful that in the midst of our failures, you continue to extend grace to your children. God, help us to anticipate changing circumstances and to learn from this story that we've seen this morning. Help us to be reminded that as circumstances change around us, it does not mean that we have to develop our own plan of security and joy. It does not mean that we are responsible for working out good in circumstances. God, help us to remember that your role, your promise, is to sovereignly orchestrate every event in our life for our good and your glory. Help us to cling to that and to trust in that. God, protect us from the what-if games. Protect us from the what-if games when we have difficulties at work and our, our job security is threatened. God, protect us when, when sickness enters into our family. Protect us when we're, we're dealing with financial issues. God, protect us from reasoning through these circumstances like, an, like a lost person that has no hope. God, I pray that in the midst of challenging circumstances, we would proclaim your name, we would cling to your promises, that we would filter everything through our understanding that you intend good for your children. God, I pray that we would respond well to trials that we face this week. That when given the chance to perform in the arena of faith, we would demonstrate to others our trust in you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.